Welcome to Transformative Talk, Critical Conversations for Teachers. I'm Dr. Zid Haddad, a professor of instruction within the Department of Interdisciplinary Learning and Teaching at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I teach undergraduate and graduate courses in curriculum and instruction. In short, I teach teachers how to teach and save lives through the use of critical multicultural education as an approach to teaching and learning. Our podcast is produced by a different group of graduate students each week, giving them an opportunity to talk about what they're reading in my class, what they experience in the field, and how that impacts their own lives and understandings. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast from wherever you're listening. Also, you can ask us questions and engage with us further using the Anchor.fm website or the Anchor.fm app on your phone. You can submit questions and you can also send us voice messages. And remember, please share our podcast on all your socials so that we can build our audience. Thanks for listening, and here's today's episode. Okay, good evening or good day out there in podcast land. Today, this is Lauren, Miles, and Ashley for this week's transformative talk, Critical Conversations with Teachers. Today's topic is putting the multi and multicultural education. We have been working with the Parker textbook, Social Studies Today, second edition. And this week we were particularly focusing on chapters nine, 10, and 11, and chapters 20 and 22 and 23. And with this first part of our conversation, we wanted to start with set A, which is chapters nine, 10, and 11. And Thematically, we're really focusing on multicultural education with that first set of chapters. So we have a few quotes that we kind of wanted to get started with. And in chapter nine, on page 92, Parker starts off with, multicultural education is good education. Powerful multicultural schools help students from diverse racial, cultural, ethnic, and language groups to experience academic success. Academic knowledge and skills are essential in today's global society, but they are not sufficient. Students must also develop the knowledge, attitudes, and skills needed to interact positively with people from diverse groups and to participate in the nation's civic life. So I'd like to introduce Miles and Ashley. Hello, guys. Hello. Well, you guys trudged through these chapters with me. Um, there was a lot to multicultural education. So I'd like for us to just get started with how you guys feel about that quote, that first quote about multi multicultural education is good education. What are y'all's thoughts on that? Well, when I mean, I yeah. yeah, sure. Um, when I looked at that and whenever I saw that, um, I definitely was in agreement. Um, we've we kind of talked about this a little bit, the three of us, that um, me coming to it as a white male, um, all mm -hmm. of the cultural education has definitely been geared toward me. But then um, when I became an educator um, and my classrooms did not reflect me, um, the implementation of, of different multicultural elements um, into classroom really did help students um, at least have a good buy-in. You know, they uh really felt more um connected to what we were reading as opposed to something you know like the odyssey uh, which was a required text for a little while that um was very difficult so um yeah i think 
that multicultural education being a good education um, definitely helps uh, with students developing the skills that they're going to need uh, once they get outside of the classroom environment. Definitely. Ashley, is there anything you want to add to that? Yes. So something interesting is that I um, once I got into grad school is when I kind of started learning more about multicultural education. And it made me reflect on um, my elementary education and how I think that I received a multicultural education growing up living overseas on a military base in Japan. So I attended a dog school and you know, people are moving from everywhere very often. There's different cultures, different backgrounds. And I didn't realize until I became an educator how different of an experience I had um, between when I was younger and then becoming an educator on the other side. So I definitely agree that multicultural education is good education and that it's for everyone, that it's not just for, you know, the people who are underrepresented in text or, um, you know, in the curriculum of schools, it's, it's meant for everyone. Sure. And, and just to clarify, I know that we're all educators here, but um, Miles, I know you are a language arts teacher. Will you clarify kind of what grades that you teach for us? Sure, absolutely. Um, I've been teaching, I guess I just finished my 12th year, um, and I've taught uh, eighth grade all the way through a dual credit uh, English four. So mostly focused on the higher grades um, in secondary. That's kind of uh, really been my my area of experience throughout my career. Mm -hmm. And, and Ashley, I know you're kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. Can you tell us what you teach? Right. So I currently teach fifth grade. Um, I'm about to go on my fourth year. Um, my first year I taught second grade and I'm actually going to teach third grade this upcoming year. So I've kind of had a taste of everything so far. Right. And you teach science, right? I create the science lesson plans, yeah, but I actually teach um, all the content areas. Oh, okay. All right. So you get a little bit of everything. Okay. Yes. And and I'm kind of the total opposite. And um, I'm teaching right now college courses, intra-level college courses of communication, public speaking. So we definitely, I know we've all kind of had our own experiences with trying to include or create multicultural education in our own courses. I would love to hear how you guys incorporate um, diversity into uh, your own classes. I know that that's kind of a buzzword right now. And that's something that, you know, whenever I mention the word diversity, my students kind of huff and roll their eyes a little bit um, because they're a bit sick of hearing that word. But I do think it's obviously a direct tie-in with multicultural education. And Parker mentions diversity within unity. Um, at the end of the chapter. So I would love to hear kind of maybe some things that you both do in your classrooms to incorporate diversity or multicultural education. Um, yeah, sure. So uh, with, with teaching English and language arts and reading in uh, public schools, uh, there's usually um, a book list and it's by no means official or mandated but um, mm -hmm. it just categorizes okay this is what ninth grade texts are available 10th grade 11th grade 12th grade so that there's no overlap 
And so um, what I do usually whenever I get the book list, um, it's, it's weird, but I kind of always remembered this quote and I don't remember who said it, but um, they always said that they would not want to belong to an organization that would allow them to be a member. And so whenever I'm looking for texts to use in class, I try to look for everything that I am not, uh, voices that um, do not come from that colonial perspective that we'll kind of get into a little bit mm -hmm. later. And so, um, and that's really how I try to focus it, um, getting out of my own mind and trying to um, see what would be a learning experience for, for me. Um, if I read these things for the first time, like what would be new information or a new perspective? And so that's really kind of yeah. how I try to to set things up. Sometimes it works phenomenally. Sometimes it falls flat on its face, but, um, and getting the feedback from the kids too, that really helps me to know if it's authentic or if it's just somebody trying to make everything sound better or different than it really is. Right. If, if they actually appreciate it or not. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. 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 If it, if it works for them, it's, it's really important. And that's something that they really talk about in these chapters too, is, you know, doing more with our lessons than just working through a textbook and doing more than just, you know, book work. And I think it's so important, right. To incorporate outside opinions and outside things. So absolutely. Definitely. I, in my classroom, I definitely try to, um, obviously I'm teaching kind of a, a totally different subject, but I try to do something that's called um, adapting to our audience. And that's really us talking about, you know, who all could be in our audience and what are their different viewpoints and perhaps, you know, education or religion or genders or upbringings, right? And race and ethnicity and all of these things that could perhaps affect how they're viewing or interpreting your message as a communicator and why it's important to be able to adapt to your audience and understand diversity, right? So that your message can be understood hopefully by more people and you can get your message across to more people. So absolutely, that's, that's really a great um, tie-in for both of us. Ashley, is there anything else you'd like to add from, from your classroom? Yes, I like what you both said, Miles. I like the word that you use, perspective. Um, I think that was a good a good way to explain. Um, myself, I also, you know, we have the curriculum that we have to follow, but I always try and look, especially for ELAR, um, you know, looking at the text, what text are they wanting me to use? And then, you know, incorporating the cultures that are, you know, within my classroom. I also think another thing that's important is just having the kids talk. Um, in class talk about, you know, their backgrounds, their families, you know, where they come from. I feel like there's not enough, um, you know, time for that for the students. And sometimes, you know, they don't get another place to talk about who, who they really are. Um, so I like just having conversations with, with my kids and, you know, getting to know them better. And I feel like uh, building relationships is a really big important of, or aspect of multicultural education um, in that, you know, showing respect. I, I think that that was a big thing that I focused on this year is just teaching the kids about respect and, you know, that there are people who are, are different and come from different backgrounds. So I think um, having a safe place for the students to talk about who they are is also 
um, a good thing to have as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's really a cool thing. Um, you know, with the three of us kind of teaching different levels, um, you know, starting off in, mm -hmm. in Ashley's classes, you know, they learn to have these conversations and then as they get older, um, hopefully we can continue these conversations and, and I can't, right. um, you know, I can't emphasize enough what Ashley was saying about relationship building. Um, mm -hmm. If the kids, if the kids know you care, it doesn't matter if they're in second grade or seniors, like if they know you care, then uh, they'll definitely be willing to have those conversations like Ashley was talking about. And then, you know, they take that basic public school education and then take it to, you know, Lauren, where you're at. And that mm -hmm. helps them that helps them again to tell those stories um, that, you know, hopefully there's been a dialogue since elementary school. Right, definitely. And sharing their own experiences. Absolutely. Just like Ashley shared hers is so important. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of talk about a different part of these chapters that really stuck with me. And it was kind of the, the sub theme of culturally responsive instruction. And this was really a kind of a big theme in chapter 10, but there was a quote specifically that really caught my attention and it's on page 96. And it says to close the achievement gap between students of diverse backgrounds and their mainstream peers, we use culturally responsive instruction, teaching that allows students to succeed academically by building on background knowledge and experiences gained in the home and community. And I think this will really tie in somewhat to what we're gonna talk about later with civic engagement and build, building um, civic students. But culturally responsive instruction was a really interesting topic to me. And the, the quote that I also saw on page 96 talks about it appears to offer the potential to improve students' academic achievement and chances for success in school. So I was curious if you guys had any feelings towards culturally responsive instruction and kind of obviously it ties directly into really the discussion we're just having. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I really feel like um, if, we could take away the the CRT boogeyman and really kind of get more into a conversation about culturally responsive instruction. Um, we would be able to accomplish much more. Um, but with that being said, uh, it's kind of a rule for teachers to just do what's best for their students to help them succeed. And that can look different in each classroom, uh, depending on kind of what is going on. So um, one thing though that uh, comes with this that, that I've seen um, is that whenever uh, the conversation is focused on things that students already have that background knowledge in, um, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's something from their home or community or maybe, you know, like uh, where they've lived previously and things like that, being able to bring all that into the classroom um, really does kind of work toward closing the achievement gap because you have that buy-in from the kids that you wouldn't normally have if I said, okay, here today we're going to read, 
of mice and men or whatever it is, um, there wouldn't be that buy-in as much um, as there is whenever uh, the, the curriculum kind of responds to the culture. Mm -hmm. Ashley, is there anything you, you can think of that you'd like to add? The other thing that I was thinking about is you brought up the achievement gap, Miles, and that was actually a question that I'd written to myself is can culturally responsive instruction close the achievement gap? And this is a really interesting topic to me because I'm really not sure. Um, I, I think that it's a really, obviously something that's so important to incorporate into our our curriculum and our instruction, but I don't know the effect that it is going to have on the achievement gap. And I mentioned it in class as well, but Gloria Ladson Billings wrote a really great uh, speech and article on the achievement gap and, and what it's really made from. And she describes it as an educational debt. And that debt is made of a lot of different things. It's, it's really not just an achievement gap. And, and I found that really interesting. So I think that it's absolutely essential and important, but I'm not sure that it's the only thing we can do to close that achievement gap. No, I think it's gonna take a lot, um, you know, like you were saying, Lauren, that um, we can't just look at one thing and be like, oh, okay, well, we've added diversity in the selection of what we're gonna use in our curriculum this year. So, okay, wave a wand, uh, abracadabra and now we've we've closed that gap and and I love uh, Ladson Billings I think she's phenomenal in what she's doing and and it really is an education debt uh, that comes in um, depending on what your classroom looks like um, you know kids that were read to as children uh, come in with a much more advanced uh, comprehension and vocabulary level as those that don't and so you know it's it's good to start here um, but, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot more. And I think the more that we can make educators aware of this uh, education debt and achievement gap, I think that's really when we'll see a, an improvement or a turnaround. Definitely. And I think Ashley has, has corrected her tech problems. Ashley, is there something you'd yeah. like to add? Yes. Hello. Um, I also agree with Ladson Billings. Um, I have used her texts um, over and over and over again. Um, I think she's awesome. I also agree with, with Miles, what you're saying, how I think another thing that um, would help the achievement gap, like you were saying, is keeping it consistent, like how you were saying, oh, we covered this, so let's move on. Um, you know, I think to keep it consistent, just like with anything, like how you keep rules in the classroom. If you're not consistent with those rules, the kids will, you know, be off the walls. So I think it, it applies in the same way that you have to stay consistent about, you know, implementing these things um, and being, you know, conscious and purposeful when, um, when doing that. Definitely, absolutely. So I think that that kind of sums up what we wanted to discuss for this first part. We are going to take a break and we will be right back to discuss multicultural literature and text 
in the classroom. There. Okay, welcome back. This is Lauren, Miles, and Ashley. And we are doing the transformative talk for this week's episode. We are coming back to talk about the second part of our literature this week. And we were really talking about multicultural texts or multicultural literature. And this, I think, really struck a chord with, with both of you two. And I wanted to start us off by taking a look at that quote that is from chapter 23. Um, this part, or this, I guess, set of the reading was focused on chapters 20, 22, and 23. And thematically, we kind of summarized it as discussing multicultural literature. And I know that you guys have a lot to say on this topic. So I just wanted to start us off with this quote from chapter 23. Said argued that Western authors, artists, scholars, and educators have consistently offered their readers highly simplistic representations of the societies they have colonized. From the perspective of many Islamic organizations, such depictions serve as justification for keeping non-Western nations in subordinate relation to the West. In this age of globalization, decolonization of the mind and the curriculum demands exposing and challenging the basis of Orientalist, Orientalist literature. And that's on page 213. So Ashley, I know that you wanted to dive straight into this. Um, what are your thoughts on that quote and on this section of the chapters? A little background on this chapter. So Parker is talking about a novel used um, called Shabanu. And between um, us three, we have never personally read it um, before. So mm -hmm. it was interesting to learn more, um, more about it. And there was a quote or a couple quotes that stuck out to me from this um, section. And another one was, or a quote was that students bring stereotypes and misconceptions concerning other cultures into the classroom. So I think that's important to keep in mind when you are, you know, maybe presenting a different text that is, you know, not something that uh, might be in the curriculum, or maybe something that you're implementing to, um, to use multicultural pedagogy. Um, and there was another, another quote that stuck out to me that said, um, in bringing the world into the classroom, teachers inevitably confront the problem of students' ethnocentrism, the view that one's own cultural ways of doing things are natural, while other societies' practices are strange. So I thought this also tied into the first part of our podcast where we're talking about, um, where we're talking about Oh, just um, creating a safe space for our students. So I feel like with with my kids, you know, they view other people's cultures as different or strange because they just don't know much about it. So I think that it's important to, um, you know, highlight misconceptions in the beginning, you know, maybe when you're presenting a text such as Shabanu so that there aren't preconceived notions um, of that culture. And another thing talked about in this chapter was that media played a big part of some of the students' interpretation of the book and the culture. Um, and I thought that was really important because I feel like media um, today 
has a big influence um, on our students. Absolutely. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. Miles, is there anything you want to add to that? Sure. Um, you know, this is one thing that I really love um, is, you know, being able to have these conversations, uh, you know, because uh, kind of like I said in the, in the first part, you know, I'm, I'm the white guy uh, who all this stuff was really kind of geared toward. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, it goes to that quote that that history is written by the victors. And so yes. curriculum has been completely dominated by this colonial um, narrative of the good guys and the everybody else. And that's not accurate at all um, as mm -hmm. far as right. reality. Um, and our classrooms need to be real places. You know, they need to have that living kind of environment that um, that all different, um, you know, voices can be seen as equal and valid and important, uh, which is something that has been sorely, sorely lacking. And, and the choosing of texts really um, dictates the kinds of conversations that you're going to have. And so uh, getting those uh, different voices in the conversation, um, you know, again, for me personally, being able to have actual conversations with with people who are not um, like me, uh, mm -hmm. that, that makes me a better person. You know, that makes me a more well-rounded individual. And I think that needs to be the goal for the kids. And, and it starts with uh, what we present to them in the classrooms. Yeah, definitely. And and I think that that is so important, yes, to, to expose our kids to different things that perhaps they don't get to see at home or they don't get to see um, outside of school. And in there are several different things that, that we do in my classroom, but um, one of the conversations that we have is really talking about intersectionality and kind of where, you know, somebody falls on that spectrum and the different experiences that they've had. And when we have that discussion, I bring in a lot of my own experience and I talk about uh, things that I've experienced as a person, especially as a disabled person. And I'm able to talk about, you know, the things that I've been through that perhaps the, the able-bodied person or the average person doesn't have to experience or doesn't have to think about. And, and that is something that I can use as an example to say, you know, the average person or the average student doesn't have to think about X, Y, Z, but it's a, a huge part of my life and it's a huge part of my everyday and I think it's so important for us to just expose our students to different experiences and, and different lives and, and different knowledge. And they don't get maybe enough of that elsewhere. And this was something, you know, that has come up multiple times in our conversations in the classroom, for sure. And this kind of brings me to a bit of a, a different um, quote that we also saved from chapter 22. And it says that social studies classrooms in the U.S. are seen as pivotal sites for citizenship education. And for me, this was also another really big theme from this set of reading that we're talking about kind of education, educating our citizens for the future and, and how we're raising you know, students to be good citizens. And how do you guys feel about that topic? I know we've discussed it a bit in class, but 
do you both feel that that that's an integral part of social studies? I can go into that. Um, I definitely agree. Um, when it says um, at the end where it says, oh, yet research shows that school serving low income students and students of color provide the least innovative and most ineffective forms of civic education. So um, I've been teaching at Title, at Title I schools um, you know, since I got out of college and I have seen you know, how you said Lauren, like sometimes these students don't see anything outside of the classroom or not exposed to certain things outside of the classroom. So it's important to um, you know, give that to them when they're, when they're our students. Um, I also think along with this, like having the conversation, sometimes the students We'll be learning about something and and they'll ask me um you know about a certain topic or about a certain culture or background and i will completely stop and find a video or something visual for them to see so that it, i think it also keeps their interest as well as providing more information um for them mm -hmm. where they might not get it outside of, of the classroom yeah absolutely and miles i knew you were going to jump in as well yeah um you know again I always feel like our goal, and I tell my students this a lot, you know, my goal as, a, as an English teacher um, is not to have them memorize the elements of a plot. My goal as an English teacher is to help them to be able to absorb and communicate and understand kind of, uh, you know, what's, what's going on. And so uh, becoming an informed citizen is a big part of that. Um, especially uh, with with the internet age and things like that, where um, it's real easy to get uh, kind of down a rabbit hole of false false narratives, and you know that really mm -hmm. kind of hurts uh, what we're trying to accomplish. And so, um, yeah, I really think that um, that's a good place where ELAR and social studies can uh, really try harder to work together on. Um, because, mm -hmm. you know, the, the exposure uh, that our students get to a variety of things that are, that are happening and going on that are outside the classroom, like we've talked about, you know, life happens outside the classroom. And uh, so to, mm -hmm. to allow them to see these different things and then to be able to kind of communicate and know how to take action and know how to be effective. Um, and, and Lauren, I'm sure that's something that you stress too. Um, in your classes as far mm -hmm. as verbal communication. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's, that's really something that I think that um, the opportunity is there uh, for ELAR and social studies to really come together with this and to help students be informed and to help them be able to discern between propaganda, for lack of a better word, and, mm -hmm. um, and reality. So that's kind of a, I think that's a good opportunity. Yeah, and it's it's a very hard thing to try to teach on. And um, a way that I have incorporated this, there are two different things that I wanted to mention. A way that I have kind of incorporated um, news biases and, and biases that we find um, is by using um, the media, I think it's called the media literacy chart or the bias news chart. Um, and you can just Google it and find this, but um, they update it every year and they've included, you know, the majority of, of news places that you would kind of 
use on, especially on the internet to find, um, you know, breaking news. Um, they've got, you know, AP news, Google news. Um, they've even got the more political ones like Fox or CNN or MSNBC. And they've plotted them all on this chart so that you can kind of have that discussion with your students. And I, I actually use it when we start talking about doing research. And I show them this chart and we talk about, you know, do you agree with the chart? How does this chart make you feel? Do you agree with everything's placement on this chart? And then we talk about perhaps the biases of the folks that even made the chart and how that could be, you know, uh, an innate bias of how they're perhaps interpreting things. So we do talk about that. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is I guess it was going to be kind of a, an open question to both of you is maybe how can we get our students more active or engaged in civic learning at perhaps at even earlier ages. I remember as a child uh, voting or having kind of um, in elementary school having uh, voting practice, right? Uh, there was an election, I believe it was Oh, my age is showing, but I, it was George Bush, and I can't remember who he was up against. It was when he was running the first time, and we had essentially an election in our elementary school, and you could go and place your vote during the day, and they announced, you know, the winner of the school at the end of the day, and that was really a cool way for us to kind of get excited about voting and, and being engaged, right, in a civic kind of level but now when I go and try to teach my college students about being engaged, right, and doing things like public speaking in that kind of civic engagement way, you know, being a part of something like an HOA or being a part of, you know, speaking publicly in just maybe politics or, or things in their neighborhood or even volunteering, they have a hard time kind of um, putting themselves in that, you know, in that position or relating to the examples that I give, ways they could be using public speaking in civic engagement, yet it's a part of our curriculum. So I have to find ways to kind of use examples, right, of it um, for these young adults. And it's a bit of a challenge. So if it's challenging for me with 18 to 20 year olds or 22 year olds, how can we get younger children to be excited about civic engagement at even younger ages. That was um, your story about the voting. I was just about to say that is what I did with my fifth grade students um, last year um, when the election was going on. Um, me and my coworkers, we did this really cool thing where um, you know we were going to have the students vote, and we started the unit. It was very interactive, and I think that is one mm -hmm. thing that helped. Um, you know, the kids were actively participating. They weren't just watching videos or listening to me talk about, you know, how that process goes. They were actually the ones doing it. Um, and, you know, when the inauguration happened, you know, we watched that together and, and we talked about it. And I know I keep going back to it about having conversations with them, but I just think it's very important. And, um, and also having them be physically engaged. I think that that makes a big difference as well. Definitely, I agree. Yeah, um, <clears throat> absolutely. And 
And it's so cool uh, what what Ashley uh, has kind of talked about, you know, giving students a, an understanding of what voting is and what it looks like and building that, you know, that knowledge, that frame of reference for them to to carry through, you know, throughout their lives. And um, when they get to high school, it's a little bit frustrating um, or mm -hmm. it has been it has been for them um, in in the past few years with everything that's mm -hmm. been going on to, um, you know, in in our society uh, with with all the the police killings that we've seen and uh, and things mm -hmm. like that that are really charged um, events. And some students feel hopeless that that their voice and their vote wouldn't matter. But, um, you know, it's important to have that conversation, but then also kind of important to shift that narrative a little bit and um, kind of let them know that, okay, there, there are these different ways, you know, you don't have to run for president to change the world. You can, you can do a lot of different things within your community. And, um, and that builds that civic engagement as well. So um, that's something that I've noticed recently, but, um, but they know what voting means. They know what, you know, becoming active means. And so um, one thing that I think we can do as educators is to just encourage them to explore that uh, and to let them know that, yes, it's it's quite possible to get in and make a real difference um, just because they're passionate about something. And, and it doesn't matter if it's they're passionate about art or music or or the political environment, whatever it is, you know, letting them know that they have a voice, that voice matters um, and teaching them how to use it. Uh, you know, that's a big thing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And yeah, definitely having that discussions in the classroom is, is a good way to start for sure. Well, unfortunately, we are reaching the end of our discussion for today. That's all we have for this episode. Thank you for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, please share subscribe, or feel free to leave a review wherever you found our show. That's it for today, but we will see you with the next episode of Transformative Talk. Have a wonderful day.